and with no warning, she smiled dazzlingly, dazzlingly, dazzlingly. Oh, Jesus Christ. Do you need to practice the word? With no warning, she smiled dazzling. <laughs> Sorry. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 30 of Ship of Magic, Defiance and Alliance. So this chapter starts off back in Jamalia. We are in Vivacious Point of View. And they are loading the slaves onto Vivacia right now. Right. So I don't believe they've left yet. No, they have not. But the process of adding slaves to Vivacia's decks has begun. And there's already been a death, which is how we start the chapter. Yes. A man chose to die. He chose how he wanted to go out and dove off the basically the gangplank, and his chains took him down. In the dark waters far below her hall, a knot of serpents suddenly uncoiled. She sensed their lashing struggle for a share of the meat. There are serpents below, she called back to them, but they ignored her just as they ignored the pleas of the slaves. Yeah, so a lot happening. This is a very heart-wrenching chapter, I think is easy to say. Um, At least this section of the chapter. And we are seeing firsthand the reason why everyone was saying you shouldn't choose a live ship to be a slave ship. I mean, obviously there shouldn't be any slave ships at all, but in this world there are, and it's horribly cruel to do this to a living being who can sense the emotions on her deck. Yeah, Vivacia says that the slaves breathed out misery until a miasma of unhappiness filled her from within. She can literally feel all of their emotions, and that strong of an emotion, that misery coming out, just infuses her. And she makes mention that, yes, they brought Wintrow on board. He's still in his chains. They locked him in that room that he was locked in for a while after he ran away the first time. They have not brought him out to her. And he also shared that awareness of the slaves and their misery. And he's not sleeping. He's not moaning. He's not making a sound. He's just staring in the blackness of his room, feeling that same thing, that cumulative feeling. Right. And it's so interesting because obviously we haven't heard from Winter's point of view yet, and we won't get to this chapter at all. We only have Vivacious point of view, and she hasn't been able to talk to Wintrow since he's been on board. And here we see Wintrow, what seems to be kind of immediately holding on to that bond and using that to feel what everyone else is going through. Yeah. It says later that she did immediately reach out and reestablish that connection, so... I'm I'm wondering how much Wintrill reached back. Right. Well, I mean, I, he was missing her. Yeah, I I would say from this, it's pretty clear that he is reaching back because he is just sitting there and feeling everyone else's emotions. Right. Yeah. I'm just wondering how much he's doing that, and if it 
in his head right now. He's debating about the wisdom of it still or what's going on. Because this is from Vivacious' point of view, we don't get to see that reunion from Wintrow's side. I suppose, but I think the way it's been explained in the past is that Wintrow can choose to feel things the way Vivacious does or not, right? Like if he wasn't finishing the connection, it's he wasn't also reaching out, he wouldn't be able to feel everybody else on the ship in the way that he is. Yeah, possibly. I mean, he probably would feel an underlying unease, but the way that it that he is described here to me feels like it's pretty obvious that he is connecting. He is I guess we don't know. We don't know. We that like makes sense to me though. It's not from his point of view, so there's a chance that he doesn't know he's doing it or that he is trying not to. But yes, you are right in saying that Vivacia is the one kind of greedily reaching out first and kind of reestablishing that. But I think that their connection was there anyway, and I don't think Winter would be mad at Vivacia in this situation in a way that would make him want to stay separate from her. I don't know. I just think we've seen enough evidence that he understands they can be held separate. And because he isn't doing that right now, it is some sort of bridging on his end, even if Fivatia doesn't see it that way. So she continues on thinking about the state of the ship and the state of the people that were brought on board her and mentions that Kyle was not able to secure as many fine artisans as he hoped for but the bulk of his load was were simple laborers and tradesmen journeymen fallen on hard times smiths and vineyard dressers lace makers plunged into debt by illness or addiction or poor judgment and now paying the forfeit of their debts with their own flesh and some of them of course the rest of them were map faces as well Right. It also talks a little bit about the conditions that the slaves are put in. So the map faces have the worst of all the conditions. They're kind of cramped into these really tiny spaces and can't move unless uh, can barely move. And even if they try to move, they have to move with a person, the person that they're chained next to. And then the artisans have the best space. They have enough room in this enough slack in the chain where they're all still connected but at least one person can stand up at a time and they have hay on the ground yeah, a very small layer of straw they yeah say. to kind of you know soften the deck i guess i don't really know what the purpose is um or how that would make it more comfortable than just plain ground but i guess soak up some of the excrement yeah and it keeps you off of the ground which i'm sure would yeah. make for less cold of a sleep but yeah it's not great and then the the middle ground people are just uncomfortable but not too cramped the uh, medium of the two it seems yeah and then vivacia also talks about the other pain on board and that's of the crew because they're also confronting something that they haven't really had to it's been spoken about and that goes back to what we've talked about back and forth with on wintrow's chapters of knowledge versus actually confronting the actual thing. So some of the crew had had reservations about the captain's plan from the beginning. Others had given it no thought and assisted in installing this, the chains and eye bolts as if they were just another kind of netting to restrain cargo. But in the past two days, it had all become real. 
Slaves were coming aboard, men and women, and some half-grown children. All were tattooed. Some wore their fetters with experience, and others still stared and struggled against the chains that bound them. None had traveled in the cargo hold of a ship before. Slaves that left Jamalia went to Chalced. None ever came back. And each man in the crew was learning, some painfully, not to look at eyes or faces, and not to heed voices that pleaded or cursed or ranted. Cargo. Stock. Bleeding sheep shoved into pens until the pens would hold no more. Each man was coming to terms with it in his own way, was inventing other ways of seeing tattooed humans, other words to associate with them. Comfrey's joshing manner had vanished on the first day of loading. Mild, in his effort to find the relief of levity somewhere, made jokes that were not funny, that were sand in the wounds wounds of an abraded conscience. Gantry held his peace and did his work, but knew that once this trip was up, he would not sail on a slaver again. Only Torg seemed to find contentment and satisfaction. He was now living his cherished fantasy of his youth, walking down the lines of the lashed-down cargo, savoring the confinement that finally made him feel free. He had already marked for himself those in need of his attention, those who would benefit from his extra discipline. Torg, Vivacia reflected, was a piece of carrion that, overturned, now showed its working maggots to the daylight. So there's different balances in here, and all of the crew now has to try to also come to terms with things. And it's, it's really hard because from a reader's point of view, a re-reader's point of view, we're not with the crew more than these small little glimpses in for another two chapters, maybe, because soon they're going to meet Kenneth, and the slaves have already had their mutiny by then. But they're all trying to come to terms with it. It's not that they're bad people, really. They're just, a lot of them just ignored it until they had to confront it. Yeah, it's this really interesting thing that happens a lot, I think, in society in general, in real life, where you can be against an idea and know that an idea is wrong but you still sometimes need to make a living or you haven't really thought it out to the extent that it'll actually affect you in some way. And then when it does, there's this sense of, well, it's come this far. I just have to live through it. And I think this is a really interesting depiction of showing these men who know slavery is wrong, who know slavery is bad and that those are real human beings that are being traded like cattle and had this opportunity to not have to be on this ship up until this point and decided to stay on anyway without realizing how horrible it would be to be in the face of a human being being carted around like cargo. Right. And I think it's really interesting to hear the different ways that the people are coping and that there are different ways people are coping. We have people not being as joking as as they were before. There is no lively spirit. This is all real now. And we have mild trying to make up for that. Yeah. Trying to lift the spirits, but he being, you know, a 14, 15 year old boy himself doesn't really know how to do that without coming across as crass and too rough. Right. Which is really sad because obviously for some of the older crew, like, how Gantry decides, I'm never going to do this again. I, if we come back, I'm getting on a different ship. It's different 
for somebody that's a 14 year old, 15 year old in this situation that was the previous ship's boy because like mild, because this is more of a formative thing. Yeah. And so he's just accepted into the crew as a man. We were talking about this earlier too, in different chapters, right? He's finally getting his opportunity to join a crew and he's not going to back down from that. Right. He's not going to show disappointment or dismay in what they're doing. And I just think it's really well done. All the intricacies of we're not just seeing that the slaves are suffering, which of course they are. And that is a horrible thing. And obviously I don't think either of us are trying to make light of that. Slavery is bad. (laughs) I think as we said, every chapter slavery comes up in, but we do also get to see the effect this has on the people who aren't slaves who are seeing how close they are to being slaves themselves, I think, for yeah. probably the first time. Yeah, so we we see, yes, misery coming from the slaves, but also there's no relief in Vivacia looking at the crew. There's no relief looking at the only person who seems happy, which is Torg, because he's a disgusting human being. It's just all bad emotions everywhere, and of course it's affecting Vivacia and Wintrow because they're echoing one another's misery here. And I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that she is a live ship. So obviously she's soaking in these emotions, but I do wonder if those emotions amplify what everyone is feeling in a negative way in this moment and make the crew feel way more uncomfortable than they would have if it wasn't a live ship. You know what I mean? Like, is there, I wonder if there's some level of this is partially also not just because these people are feeling bad, but because they are subtly feeling the undercurrent of all of the slaves discomfort that Vivacia is radiating. Yeah, possibly. Either way, I hope they feel bad and you know, <laughs> like they should, <laughs> but that is the world that they live in and they are making do. And her thoughts are running fairly dark as well. Working inside her despair was the deep conviction that this could never could have happened to her if her family had only been true to her. If one of her true blood had captained this ship, that captain would have had to share what she was feeling. She knew Efren Vestret would have never exposed her to this. Althea would have been incapable of it. But Kyle Haven heeded her not. If he had any misgivings, he had not shared them with anyone. The only emotion Wintrow recognized from his father was a cold, burning anger that bordered on a hatred for his own flesh and blood. Vivacia suspected that Kyle saw them as a double-pronged problem, the ship that would not heed his wishes because of a boy that would not be what his father commanded him to be. She feared that Kyle was determined to break one or the other of them, and both if he could. And she kept her silence because Wintrow was brought on board, not brought up to her, but he had then come up to her later and pretty much bragged of his capture. He being Kyle. Yes. Kyle had pretty much bragged of his capture of Wintrow, monologuing at her, basically saying that you should be happy now. And a shift of a breeze brought some smell of whiskey from his breath to her. So it's a new vice that Kyle has picked up on this journey. And he finishes his whole thing saying, I've bought you the damn worthless boy. That was what you wanted. That's what you've got. He's all marked as yours. He's yours for every day left in his miserable, useless life. And you damn well better be content with him 
for it's the last time I'll try to please you. It was only in that instant that she finally heard the jealousy in his voice. Once he had coveted her, a beautiful, expensive ship, the rarest kind of a ship. And she goes to explain that any captain would look up and want to have a live ship, because that's the top of the top. You'd become elite few. And he had known her value and desired her and courted her, and when he eliminated Althea, he thought he had vanquished every rival for her, but in the end, his attentions had not been enough for her. She had turned from him to, to a worthless twig of a boy who did not grasp her value. Like a spurned lover, Kyle saw his dream of truly possessing her crumbling. The shards of it held only the bitter dregs of hatred. Before I move on to the next part, there's, there's a lot in there. And I want to start with the beginning of that. Her saying that if her family was true to her, this would never have happened. And yes, she goes into talking about Kyle and, and everything like that. But there's, there's a root of that. They put this on me. My family put this on me. She's feeling more and more distant from the Vestrits lately. And, and she talked about that last chapter, too, with her becoming more independent without Wintrow there and be being more like herself and being more of herself without the Vestrit part of her there. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about how the Vestrits influence, well, I guess really every live ship family influences their live ship, but especially how Vivacia is struggling with that here. And it kind of echoes a lot of feelings Althea had and a lot of feelings Wintrow has. And just in general, I think a lot of the Vestrets feel that sense of my family is letting me down. I guess we could even say Kefria and Ronica feel that too. My family is letting me down. And if they really cared about me, they wouldn't have forced me into this situation. Yeah. So it creates another barrier between them. Yeah. And I think... It's really hard because in this situation, it was her family letting her down. Efren did this. Efren chose to give Kyle, well, Kefria, the charge of the boat, ensuring that Kyle would do whatever he planned to do. And I know that he was influenced by Ronica, and obviously he had no idea that Kyle would have gone into slavery with the ship. But he did have misgivings about it, and he let his wife talk him out of it. And that is partially Ronica's fault, too, who is also the Vivacia's family. Mm -hmm. They decided that Althea wasn't good enough and they would pick someone else. And I think that is a little bit of the family letting her down. And then Althea decided to walk away and not travel on the ship and not fight to travel on the ship. She left Vivacia alone. And it's hard because I... And Wintrow ran. Yeah, and Wintrow ran. And I feel bad, too, because obviously Althea didn't know that slavery was going to happen. I don't think she ever found out because she ran away before Kyle let everybody know he was going to start with slavery. But there is that sense from Vivacious' point of view that they all made these choices and left her with dealing with being a slave ship. It's horrible. And I feel her pain, and I understand why she would put that blame on her family. Right. And then we move on to Kyle's rant at her and his jealousy that Wintrow has something that he can never grasp now. I think what's really interesting about this is that 
he brags about finding his son as a slave. And it says in the text that he does this in a way that is loud enough for everybody on deck to hear. So this is probably the first time a lot of the deckhands are hearing what happened to Wintrow. I'm sure most of them know he's on board and tattooed now, but this is the story. This is what happened. And if they had missed it for some reason, now they know that Wintrow's own father bought him as a slave for the ship and that he doesn't care about him anymore. Yeah. And he is drunk and drinking. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's so hard. It's so interesting because it almost feels like Vivacia is trying to feel sorry for Kyle and that in realizing that there is jealousy there, that he can't do what Wintrow does effortlessly without even wanting to be on the ship. And I'm sure this stems from a place of insecurity in being married to an old Bing town trader family where he is not old blood and he's ignorant of their ways. Although he does nothing to fix that or try to be welcoming to new ways, but in his mind, we're going from his perspective. Right. And in his perspective, he's never enough. It's never in. And we know Efren didn't like him very much. Mm. I mean, Efren he liked him. He thought he was a good man. He thought he was good enough for his daughter. He, he was impressed by him as a captain but he still thought that the family should keep the live ship Mm. okay that's why he wanted Althea to be the captain okay I thought there was an over uh, an underlying sense of he's not good enough to captain a live ship no I I mean maybe but that doesn't mean he doesn't like him either I mean sure but I don't know I guess I should rephrase that he doesn't like him as a captain Possibly. Uh, We we don't really know. I don't know if we get sentiments about that. I guess he allowed him to be the captain while he was sick. So, yeah, I don't know. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Either way, I can see where his frustration would be coming from. But also he ultimately views Vivacia as property, as one more thing to boost his own ego. And that in and of itself kind of makes the whole feel sorriness of this moment null and void to me yeah I I don't even know if it's trying to feel sorry I think this is vivacious first hint of this is why you're doing things like this this is why you're acting this way and I don't think that she's trying to feel sorry for him I think she's just trying to gain an understanding of why he's doing things and just as you said vivacious observation was that Kyle saw her and Wintrow as but parts of a machine, a block and tackle that once joined a certain way must then work a certain way. Had they been a fiddle and bow, she reflected, he would have smashed them together over and over again, demanding that they make music. So it's not necessarily in my mind that she's trying to empathize or, or feel pity, but I think just trying to be like, why are you so horrible? Oh, you're just jealous of your son. Yeah, I suppose. And right after that, she kind of reflects, like, maybe that's the only feeling I have towards Wintrow now, too, is that I'm the spurned lover. I thought I was supposed to have you, and now somebody else claimed your attention, and you ran away from me. And that's what, like, 
is a parallel that she's reflecting on like what Kyle feels for me must be what I feel for Wintrow because I don't have a word for it. Right. And it's really hard for her because she only has memories of emotions from to learn from. And she doesn't really have words to put to describe the emotions that she does feel. And so she has to liken it to what she knows. But again, Vivacia, as we've remarked before, is a has gone through a lot of not so great things as a formative journey here for her. And so she has a cynical edge to it. And as we saw in the doc, immediately what Althea saw is that she does have a violent and dark edge to her if things aren't going exactly her way. So maybe it's a little bit cynical to say like, what Kyle feels for me is what I feel for Wintrow. <laughs> right. But that's her mood right now. She's yeah. feeling spurned. She's feeling abandoned. And she's feeling like she has to take on the world herself because nobody wants her. Right. And she doesn't want anybody who does claim to want her like Kyle. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just a really hard situation for her to be in at the moment. So she was left alone for a while. And the next morning, Mild does come up towards and near her, who is taking some Sindin while on duty. And she's pretty... Um, Pretty disappointed about that, but waits until he finishes putting away his stash of Sindin and asks Mild to talk to Kyle to bring Wintrow to her. Because she doesn't want to talk to Kyle, she just wants Wintrow brought to her. Right. And eventually bullies him into it, commands him to do it, and he's like, oh, fine. <laughs> yes, I will, ma'am. Well, he talks <laughs> about how he, why he doesn't want to immediately. He He is upset that she's trying to put him in that spot, and says, can't I just tell him that you want to have a word with him instead? And she says, no, I don't want to talk to him. Just tell him what I want. And he lets her know that he's already in a bad mood today because some of the map faces are acting sick. Torg says they're faking it. They say if he don't put them somewhere better, they're all going to die. Then she cuts him off and tells him, you know, mild, and then he says, yes, ma'am. So he cuts this rant off. But we do learn that there's already trouble on board and he's already unhappy about what's going on. And we have the sense that Torg is trying to take over. He's like, we, we see that he's already starting his horribleness. These This group of people is saying that they don't feel well and that if they stay in this cramped space, they're going to die on the journey. And Torg is saying they're making it up. So pretty disgusting behavior. And I'm sure Kyle is listening to him. <laughs> and Kyle's the one that's brought out by that. Yes, what do you want? And she's like, well, Wintro, which is what I know you were told that I want. And he leaves after she demands to see him now. Um, and she's still she reflects then on what she's feeling towards Wintro because she's not certain about what she feels towards him yes she's glad that he's aboard but the selfishness of that feeling is apparent to her and also there's a humiliation of her being abandoned by him and her confronting a new feeling that came with that reestablished connection when he came back on board Almost immediately, she had felt better, much more herself. It was a certainty she drew from him, an affirmation of herself. 
She had never been aware of that before now. She had known she was joined to him, but had thought of it as the love that humans so treasured. Now she was not sure. Uneasily, she wondered if there was something evil in the way she clung to him and drew her perception of herself from him. Perhaps it was what he had always sensed in their bond that had made him try to escape her. It was a terrible division to feel such need for someone and yet to feel angry that the need existed. She did not want to exist as a being dependent on another for her validity. But she wants to confront him, to demand and ask him if he saw her as a parasite and if that's why they fled. She wants answers to this. She fears the question and the answers, but she needs to know what his true feelings towards her are. I think what's really interesting about this, number one, is that we see just how much Wintrow has influenced her personality. We have this sort of deep introspection, the knowledge that just because your base instinct is to be happy about something doesn't mean that you can't dig into that more. But obviously on a more negative scale in this instance where she is picking apart everything she's doing as being bad and what if it's all bad because all she's ever gotten from Wintrow are these talks about how she is an abomination and not of Saw and he can't figure out how she fits into Saw's world and she has had to wrestle with this and his distance and so of course she's going to take that and think this is why he left it's because I'm not of Saw and if I was just a little bit better he would have stayed, which is heartbreaking because him leaving really had nothing to do with her. It wouldn't have matter if, mattered if she was a live ship or not. He would have left. He didn't want to be a sailor at all, and it has nothing to do with her. But obviously, because she is a living being and they do have that deeper connection, she can't help but feel like it is something that she did that pushed him away. And if she could have just been better, it would have been fine. Yeah, and and her question really boils down to, as she says here, did she truly have a life and spirit of her own, or was she but a vestrit shadow? So, is she a leech? Someone that just grabs on to the nearest vestrit and be like, oh, yep, this is who I am. Or away from Wintrow, can she have her own life? And she's terrified of that answer, because if she is just a parasite, then those admonishments from Wintrow that she might not be of Saw, that she doesn't have a life of her own, that this isn't, you know, whatever, might be true. So she's scared. Right. But she still wants to confront it head on, which I think is shows how vestrous she is. <laughs> yeah. You know, there, that there is a conflict and something that's bothering her, but she's going to talk about it. She's going <laughs> to figure it out. And she gives Kyle some time as he walks away but even after a few minutes, nobody was dispatched to get Wintrow. So she starts deciding on ways that she's going to mess with him because she's in charge and she's tired of letting Kyle think that he is. Yep. And she's not going to play nice anymore. She began to list to Starbird just a tiny bit. And she says, in some ways, Kyle was a good captain and Gantry was an even better mate. They would notice that list. They would restow the cargo before getting underway, at which time she would develop a port list and perhaps strike her anchor a bit, a bit. So she's just swaying with the waves, making that more pronounced, doing little bits of little acts of rebellion to get the attention of the crew. 
specifically Kyle and Gantry. To do what she wants. Mm -hmm. Well, she does mention that the stowing of the human beings in her hole has not been done correctly. So technically there already is a weight issue, but it didn't have to make a difference because she could have made up for it. And instead of just doing that, she's like, fine, if you won't do what I want, I'm not going to be a good ship for you. And she continues to do that. She, like you said, she stares stonily ahead and she calculates her plan on what to do until they give her what she wants, which feels very Althea. (laughs) Yeah. And okay, fine. I won't directly speak to you or go against you verbally, but I will physically do everything that I can to show everyone that I'm going against you. And Kyle might be reminded a bit of Althea about a vivacious attitude on this whole journey. And maybe that's where he's getting some of his anger as well. Right. Too much vestrid in her. (laughs) So that is where we end with Vivacia. I do want to quick talk about how Gantry is talked about in this chapter, um, because it does say that he decides that he's never going to work on a slave ship again. Why do we think Gantry has been on this ship at all? If he so quickly realized he never wants to work on a slave ship, why would he have been first mate with his friend that wanted to start trading in slaves? Like, why wouldn't he have brought up concerns earlier than now? Because it's not the place of a first mate. And also, he could be captain afterwards. I guess, yeah. You know, that's kind of promise that's in the plans that's offered to Wintrow. And then eventually, not really offered to Torg, but Torg thinks he might get that offer as a as a first mate when Gantry is captain. So, I don't know. Loyalty? I guess. I don't know. It just feels like they would have been in a position. There seems to be enough mutual respect between the two of them where he could have voiced his concerns. And maybe he did and they just were ignored. I don't know. Yeah. I, we talked about this in one section where... It was when Wintrow was cutting off his finger and Gantry was talking sideways and around Kyle. And we kind of were talking about how Gantry seems to know how to deal with Kyle and how to manage him and his moods and, you know, knows when he's being stubborn and whatever. So I feel like they've worked together for a long time. There was probably no swaying Kyle in this. That's fair. But anyway, that is where we leave with Vivacia being determined to get her way. In the second half of this chapter, we're back in the Vestret Manor, the Vestret household, in a darkened kitchen with Kefria and Ronica. And we get a little bit of a touch of what their relationship used to be like way, way back in the day. Before the blood plague. Yes. Um, It talked about how the kitchen used to be Kefria's favorite place to be. It was always lively, and the boys would play with their blocks under the great wooden table while she stood on a stool and watched her mother mince fine and savory herbs that would season the little meat rolls. And she would help her mom make the delicious pastries that her mom was making for parties that she was hosting, that she relished in being the one to make the things that her friends would be eating. But... The blood plague came and ended those days. Sometimes Kefria thought that everything that was merry and lighthearted and simple in their household had died with her brothers. Certainly there had never been any gay little parties after that. 
She did not recall her mother ever again preparing dainties as she had then, or even spending much time in the kitchen. Now that they had reduced their servants, Kefria came in to help with the cooking herself on busy days, but Ronica did not. And yet here they are together making the meals for the Rainwild traders that are coming to their home. Yeah, Kefria says that it's an awful parody of those old days. They're, they had cooked together, chopping and peeling, simmering and stirring, all the while discussing the selection of wine and teas, how strong to make the coffee, and which cloth to set out on the table. They spoke very little of why the Festrus had contacted them to say they would come tonight. Even though the payment was not due for some days now, it waited in a strong box by the door. Unspoken between them was the uneasy knowledge that there had been no reply at all to Kefria's letter. The Cupris were not the Festrus. There was likely no connection at all. Likely. So we get the plot, the, right. the exposition dump in that paragraph right there. No response to the letter that was sent up on the Kendry to the Rainwild River saying that the dream box was missing. And there was a message from the Festrus saying, hey, we're going to meet early. We're coming this night. Right. And I do want to talk about how um, there is this kind of ceremony involved. This is, I think, the first time ever Kefria has been involved in this, right? We, at least that we are aware of, she has never been a part of this ceremony and this Yeah. She knows about it and she knows all of the ceremonial responses and things like that. But from what we can tell through context clues, I don't know if she's accompanied her mother. She doesn't often. seem to have any recognition for the face of Sarawin. Yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, Kowlin. Kowlin, sorry. Maybe a couple times when she was younger and first like brought into the knowledge, like to practice and things like that, when Ronica was definitely still the one in charge. But because she, she has like knowledge of everything and, I mean, I don't know. She, she seems to know a lot more about this than any other finances or anything else in the, the household. So I I want to believe that she has a little bit more experience, but for the past 20 years, maybe not. Or past 15 years, maybe not. I mean, to be fair, this is probably a very traditional thing that gets taught to every old trader family woman and is not like math or the books where she needs to do it's something that's more of a deep seated tradition that has to be right. And so there's no taking it away because, Oh, you'll do better. You know, like with the books, her right. mom could be like, well, you're not doing the math good enough. I'll just do it. It's easier. Yeah. It's, you have to do this well and you have to learn it. And even then there's no saying that she didn't just learn that very recently. And that's why she's so well-versed now is because she's been training on it. Maybe there, we have no way of knowing. Yeah. But she is well-versed. I do also want a quick sidebar um, talk about how things were before the blood plague. I thought the boys were older than Kefria. No, Kefria is the first. Hmm. Kefria was the eldest, then the two boys, and then Althea. Weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As far I as I remember, at least. I mean... Clearly she's older because, I mean, you don't have to be that old to have a toddler help you in the kitchen, right? Like little kids can always help in the kitchen. But if her brothers are playing with blocks, that 
is a little bit lower of a level right. than like able to stuff pastries full of meat. Like that's kind of a little bit more well, dexterity. She says that she was helping peel the hard boiled eggs or take off a jacket of some sort of pastry. So not necessarily. Right. Well, that's still more like movement with your yes. fingers or whatever. I don't know what that's called. Dexterity. dexterity yeah. yeah, that's then you would have it like two. I, I agree with you. I'm just saying she wasn't okay. like, <laughs> no, I don't think she's like eight, like <laughs> a culinary master. And then no, <laughs> but, but yeah, there, there is a, a vast age gap between Althea and Kefria, at least like 15 years or so we're thinking. So yeah. Yeah. I guess it really depends on. I mean, Wintrow is Kefria's oldest at about 14 right now. If, Kefria is 35, Hedwintro at 21, and Althea is 20 right now. Yeah. That's just my estimate. They weren't married when she was, when Althea first started going on the ships, but they were courting by the time Althea was taken advantage of by her father's uh, mate. Was he a mate? No, he's like a ship's boy or like just a regular sailor, I think. Okay. So, but I don't know. I don't know. Hard to do the years on on recording here, but yeah, in general, I think about fifteen years difference or so is in my head all the time between the two girls, and then the boys. We don't really know their ages, right? I don't know. Well, either way, it doesn't super matter. I just pointing out that I didn't realize. So in case anybody else is like me and didn't think about it, we now have confirmation. Kefria is the oldest and the boys were younger than her. Obviously Althea is younger than her. (laughs) So Kefria is thinking about these payments, about their, their guests that are coming tonight and has a little side thought again, little bit of a regret that her father's decision not to trade up the Rainwild River was probably not a wise one. But only sometimes she has that thought, like tonight. And that thought comes to her mind because we learn that whenever a live ship is awakened, the payment increases that is due. Yeah, and usually to reflect the profits that are going to come in from using them up the Rainwild River. Right. And so obviously that is not something that's going to happen to their family. They will just have to pay more now that Vivacia is awake. Although that's not why they're paying more this time. That's just right. something to know. <laughs> Kefria starts a conversation saying, I still think we should invite Malta to join us. She should learn. That one has learned far more than we suspect, her mother said wearily. No, Kefria, indulge me in this. Let you and I hear the festers out together and together decide our course. I fear that the decisions we make tonight may chart the course of the Vestrit family. She met her daughter's eyes. I do not say these words to hurt, but I do not know how to put it kindly. We two are the last of the Vestrit women, I fear. Malta is haven to the bone. I do not say Kyle Haven is a bad man. I say only that what conspires here tonight is for Bingtown traders to decide, and the Havens are not Bingtown traders. Have it as you will, Kefria said tiredly, and she thinks, without rancor in her head, 
that someday you will be dead and I will no longer be caught in the middle. Perhaps then I shall simply give it all over to Kyle and spend the time tending my gardens, thinking of nothing else. She was sure Kyle would leave her alone. Resting at last. So Kefria is just done with being pulled in every different direction and trying to balance and walk the two lines here. And she's thinking of her husband and doesn't really know what to feel about him. She could recall the wonderful sound his name had once produced in her heart, but she could no longer hear it or make it. And she thinks very cynically about love, that it was after all based on things. Family love, the love in her marriage, even her daughter's love for her, all based on things and the power to control the things. If you gave up power to people, then they loved you. Funny, since she had discovered that, she little cared if anyone loved her or not anymore. It's extremely sad. Yeah, and not how love works. (laughs) That is just how she's been feeling that love works. And I feel really bad for her that she doesn't really get a chance or a non-tumultuous time to learn that. Obviously, things are harder now for them than they could have been because her father does not trade up the Rainwild River. But, or did not, I suppose. But in this moment, that is how she's been treated her whole life. And especially with how Kyle changed once she did not give him a little bit of more control. Whenever she did not concede to him fully, then the love was taken away. And her mom is mad at her when she tries to take over. And obviously that has been being mended, but the scars of that still run deep. She's still going to deal with the aftermath of growing up in a household where she got more praise for leaving things to her mom. But I also think this idea of just being so tired is really realistic. I think it's really true to whenever you find out about a thing that you were previously ignorant about, you just wish for the time when you were still ignorant sometimes because it's so much work to fix Yeah, that sometimes it's better just to think about the times when you could have just not cared. Ignorance is bliss. Truly. And so Kefria can only take pleasure in the simple things right now, you know, the fire before her, the taste of tea, and just kind of, they sit there in silence for a little bit until a gong rings out. Right. And I do want to say that I think that her ignorance cannot be replaced. I think this is a uh, oh, no. wish yeah. for, of hers that maybe it'll be fine. I'll just give it all over to Kyle. But I think deep down, she knows that that's not something that can happen. Right. That this is how it is now. And I also did want to take a minute to talk about how Malta is being talked about here and how Ronica has kind of made a camp of old Bingtown trader family blood and new trader blood and Malta doesn't have our blood. And it's such an interesting thing because we do know that obviously she didn't have a very good conversation with Malta before. I don't think we've said anything about this when we were talking but Malta's whole belief that she won that just because her grandmother retreated ungracefully is silly because obviously her grandmother still has significantly more power than her and can still wield that power. But in this moment, you kind of do see a little bit of the childishness of like, it's us versus her and the her is a 14 year old. And so I think it's really interesting here, but I mean, to be fair, 
Malta threatened to tell the Rainwild trader secrets to her father without having any knowledge of what that meant. So right. of course she's going to say, you know, she has no conscience and it's not good to bring her into this because the, she's just going to make it worse. The feeling behind the decision might be childish, but I think the decision is the correct one. Right. Because Malta in this situation would be a disaster. Yeah. I'm sure she'd yell or throw a fit, which maybe would have been good to prove that she's a child still. Right, right. But I don't know. Anyway, the gong has rung and... Her mother gets up and says, make fresh tea. Calwyn likes tea. And then her mother did a rather peculiar thing. She went to the interior door of the kitchen and opened it suddenly. She stepped out quickly to peer up and down the hall as if she expected to surprise someone. Caffrey's like, what, is Selden out? He's such a night owl. But we know Ronica is looking for Malta, who she just learned last chapter, eavesdrops. Regularly. Regularly. So Ronica's like, oh no, no one was there. And then shuts the door firmly, comes back to the table, and then asks Caffrey, you recall the greeting ritual? Of course, don't worry, I won't shame you. You have never shamed me, her mother replied absently. Kefria could not say why her words made her heart leap so strangely. It's because Ronica was very distant when she was a kid and probably Kefria never heard that. Yeah, also probably <laughs> Ronica, I feel like Ronica's the type of person to make it way more known when she is displeased than when she's right, pleased. Right, Like I don't think she's a big praiser, but she's definitely a big critic. So I could see this being the first time her adult daughter with three kids has heard. I'm actually never been disappointed in you. I think you're doing great. <laughs> so the door opens and Ronica is stunned to silence because Calvin Festru is there, but also Janie Kupris. Kefria is waiting desperately for her mother to speak to rescue them all somehow. But Kefria has to step in and, and do the customary greeting to everyone so they all step in and Ginny Kupris, she of the flame jewels was surprisingly smooth faced for a rain, rain wild trader but the one woman's violet eyes were almost hidden by the wobbly growths on her eyelids it was difficult for Kefria to meet her gaze and smile in a welcome, welcoming way but she did so again yeah this this might lend credence more towards her not having any exposure to it at all. I mean, she's obviously been exposed to Rainwild traders in the trader gatherings, but up close and personal is a different way, and she doesn't seem to know Calwyn very well. Right. It doesn't feel like this is, I recognized her violet eyes from the one time at childhood. This is a, the stranger's heavy violet eyes are weird and right. off-putting, as well as her growths. But it's also really interesting to hear that there is such a difference even in Rainwild circles. I guess, do we know, is Janny Bingtown stock? Like, was she wedded I from Bingtown? I don't remember, but I don't think so. I could be wrong, but I didn't think so. It's just really interesting how she has very little marks. So, I mean, Kefra even says that, that it's so faint that she could probably get away walking unhooded in plain daylight down Bingtown streets. Yeah. Her markings were subtle. A pebbly outline traced the edges of her lips and eyelids. The whites of her eyes glowed bluish in the dim room, as did her hair, teeth, and nails. 
it was not unattractive in a shivery way. The description of that reminds me of how Beloved later makes that a fashion statement. I guess Malta and Rain, like Malta specifically really brings that fashion into Jamalian court because she goes there with her elderling colorings and like some scales at the edges of her eyes and temples or whatever. But here we can see the start of it that even Kefri is like, well, it's not unattractive. Right. It's, it's just a little bit exotic in a weird way. Yeah, it's just different. <laughs> so once again, Ronica is silent. Kefria takes the lead again and makes a customary greeting and introduction. And Kowlin responds to that and then kind of stumbles over the end, pausing and indicates the woman at her side. I bring to your table and your home my guest, who after this shall be your guest. Can you extend your welcome to Janie Cupris, our kinswoman? Her gaze was fixed on Kefria's face. It was up to her to respond. I do not know the formal reply to such a request, she admitted frankly, so I shall simply say that any guest of our longtime friend Calwyn is more than welcome in our home. Allow me but a moment to set out another plate and silver. She desperately hoped that so august a personage as the head of the Cupris clan would not be offended by her informality. Janie smiled and glanced at Colwyn as if seeking permission to speak. Colwyn gave her a small smile. I, for one, am just as glad to set aside formality as well. Let me say that this unexpected visit is more my doing than Colwyn's. I begged her to arrange it and to allow me to accompany her, that she might introduce me to your home. If it has presented any difficulty for you, I wish to apologize now. Kefrius, of course, says none at all. Please let us be at ease with one another and sit down. Right. It's really interesting because we do have this long description, a description of the fancy words that are put, the play, once again, the play of formality that has been set up by their ancestors, that they are just repeating the words of every time someone comes to visit. And then with this hiccup of, and my guest, will you honor her as well? And this is not something they prepared for. It's not some, uh, clearly something that isn't talked about enough to be something that she would just know offhand. And it's unclear if Ronica knew the correct response to that in a traditional sense. Right. Yeah. Um, because she's reeling and silent. I don't know that that's a whole other discussion, but it's really fun. It's really interesting to see this, this change of, well, I honestly don't know what to do next. So yeah, it's fine. And everybody's like, yeah, okay. Like <laughs> who needs the formalities? We all know why we're here. It's fine. And, so yeah, and with that formalities drop, Calvin turns to Ronica, who is her friend, and says, "You're really silent. Are you okay with us here?" And Ronica's like, "How could I not be okay with you here? <laughs> I but defer to my daughter tonight. She has come into her inheritance. It is more fitting that she welcomes you now rather than I, and that she speak for the Vestrits." And this is what I want to question you with. Was that her intention the whole time? Is that why she's been so quiet that she's letting Kefria do it on her own with no interference? No, I don't think so. I, I think she was truly stunned to silence and trying to think of some way. But she was silent for so long that maybe her initial intention was to let Kefria do some of it. And that her being stunned to silence, just kind of, oh, this was my plan. Let just let Kefria speak. I can't think of anything. Right. 
It's really hard because I feel like on one hand, it is very Ronica of her not to tell her daughter she was going to be silent the whole time and that it would be all up to her. And I see that in her, I could see in her mind thinking, well, Kefria said she wants more responsibility and she doesn't want me to butt in. So I'll let her take care of it. But at the same time, the way that Kefria is describing her being so quiet feels like she clearly is in shock to her daughter who knows her well. Yeah. And this is where we can kind of see the differences between the two women, because we have Ronica, who I'm just imagining being in Kefria's shoes right now, would immediately, to the reader, be describing her thoughts of like, why is Janie here? These are different reasons that could be here. Was this happening? Was this happening? And I think that's what's going through Ronica's head. But she doesn't have to, she's not saying anything out loud. And Kefria, in the meantime, is just like, okay, mom, please save me and say something. Okay, no, I will do it then. And just going through the ritual greeting and right. not really thinking of the consequences. Because we've already established Ronica as somebody who is trying to see the big picture at all points in she's time. She's playing 3D chess. Yeah, or trying to at least. Yeah. <laughs> and this move has very, very, uh, has scared her quite a bit. Right. Well, we know that she knows Malta has been lying, right? So obviously one of the things she could be thinking is, so Malta lied and they're here to collect Malta or Malta didn't lie and they're here to collect ransom because they gave us an expensive gift and we don't have it. So they want money back. There are two possibilities. Maybe there are more. I don't know. I'm not from this society. Those are the two that come to my mind. And so I'm sure she's trying to work out every single possibility and what to do in each circumstance. Right. Which I think is in my mind, at least that's what I'm going with. That's kind of what stunned her and stun locked her right in place. But I think you're right that Kefria doesn't really, obviously she's worried about why Janie Kupris is here yeah. or what's going on, but she's not taking time to really think about what her being here. Like you said, she's not thinking about the consequences. She's mm -hmm. just, she's okay, trying to well, just get through the greeting. Cause she hasn't done it before. <laughs> right. Which to be fair would be terrifying. The very first time you're doing this super important specific ritual that has to be done a specific way. And somebody's already thrown a wrench in it. And you're like, mom help. And she's just doing nothing. I think that would be very flustering. And she does <laughs> great. I think that's another thing is like, as much as we talk about how Kefria spent a lot of time not having responsibilities and using excuses to get out of things, I think she still impressively does well when under pressure. She did, I guess, throw parties. She did go to events. So it's not like she doesn't have any social knowledge. So at least she can oh, pull yeah. She's from that. Definitely a socialite more yes. so than a head of the family and kind of person. it kind of shows in the way that this whole at interaction goes. It's more because we're seeing it from Kefria's point of view and because Kefria has kind of the been made the head of this conversation, she is comfortable in this role and it feels more like a comfortable role. It's not a chess game. Like this is people talking. And I think that's kind of refreshing. Whereas if this was from Ronica's point of view, it is a chess game and you're always constantly thinking about the consequences, which is needed sometimes. Kefria does kind of drift into that in the next couple paragraphs too here. Right. Or we I, get ahead of ourselves. Yes. But. but I think it's just more of a relaxed vibe that Ronica probably yeah. hasn't had in a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> but Janie agrees with you that Kefria did so, did well and did so eloquently speaking up for the family and says, I fear I have not done this well. 
I had thought that coming myself might be the most comfortable way to begin this, but perhaps a letter would have been better. It is quite all right, I assure you, Kefria spoke. Let us all be seated and enjoy food and tea and wine together, or I have coffee if anyone would prefer it. She had a, des a sudden desire to know Janie Cooperus better before the reason for her visit was broached. Slowly, slowly, if this riddle must be unfolded, she wanted it to be slowly to be sure she understood it fully. You have set a lovely table, Janie mentions, and it did not escape Kefria that, her, that she seated herself first, nor that Colwyn deferred to her. She was suddenly glad that the olives were the finest, that her mother had insisted the almond paste be prepared fresh tonight, that only the very best of what they had cooked be set out upon the table. It was a lovely table of rich and dainty food such as Kefri had not seen in months. Whatever their financial limits might be, Ronica had not allowed it to affect the feast, and Kefri was glad of it. For a time, table talk was all there was. Slowly, Ronica recovered both poise and charm and led the conversation into safe channels. So... It's Ronica who really is big on the traditionalist things, and it seems like in Kefria's point of view and through her thoughts that if she was in charge of it, she would have continued with, we need to save money, we're in financial straits, and would have kind of scrimped a little bit on the feast, but was very glad that no expense was spared for this because they have esteemed guests who is deferring to another esteemed guest. <laughs> right. So clearly you wouldn't want to offend them with a paltry table full of treats. Also, I noticed that they only tabled the very best of what they cooked. So they cooked a lot and then just kind of set aside things that didn't turn out well. <laughs> I mean, that's what like they do in cooking competitions, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm just <laughs> like, man, that's not what I do when I cook meals. Yeah. We're well, just eating everything. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently I'm not an honored guest when you cook. <laughs> but now I want to see some version of Chopped where it's just old traders cooking for Rainwild traders. <laughs> oh, anyway, it is very good that Ronica is keeping tradition. Yes, and recovers her poise and charm. And it's just table talk for now, getting right. to know one another. And it's nice that she's taken over from Kefria just to make sure that things stay calm, which I think Kefria doesn't mind in this moment. She's no, so no. frazzled. Everything's gone so wild that she kind of needs her mom to take over for a little bit to take a break. And Kefria, it gives Kefria time to notice that whenever Janie took over the conversation, which was often, the little stories and anecdotes she told served to illustrate the wealth and power of her family. Not told braggingly, but there was no intent to humble the Vestrits, but in each case, she compared the food or company favorably to some grander occasion or personage. She was, Kefria decided, deliberately trying to share information about her family. Her husband was still alive. She had three live sons and two live daughters, an immense family by Rainwild standards. And a new wealth from the discovery of the flame jewels was allowing them more time to travel and entertain, to bring into her home objects of beauty and the knowledge of scholarship. Was not that truly the greatest benefit of wealth that allowed one to treat family and friends to what, what they deserved? If they cared to journey up the river, they would be most welcome in her home. It was like the courting dance of a bird, Kefria reflected. Her heart turned over in her chest again. Janie Cooper suddenly turned to look at her, as if Kefria had made some small sound that had attracted her eyes. And with no warning, she smiled dazzlingly and said, 
I did receive your message the other day, my dear, but I confess I did not understand it. That was one of the reasons I begged Cowan to arrange this visit, you know. And so we get to the heart of the matter, and we see right before this that from Janie Cooper's point of view, this suit has started, the courtship has started, and so she's doing the nice thing about sharing information about her family, saying that your Malta will be very secure and happy and well, well cared for in our family. She'll have objects of beauty and scholarship. We can travel. We have the greatest food. We have a large family for you guys to rely on. This is going to be a great partnership. And now she gets to the crux of the matter. Like, I'm confused about your letter because I thought this was all squared away. (laughs) Right. Well, it's really interesting because there is that sense of Malta will be taken care of, but so will you because now we're family. Right. And obviously it's not as clear when you don't know that she's going to demand that they get married or Malta and Rain get married, but it is clear that she's pushing some sort of agenda, which like you said, is now brought to the forefront when she says she's confused by the letter to which Kefria misunderstands and says, I know it's really embarrassing, but truthfully, we just don't know where the box is, but I assure you as soon as we find it, we will return it to you. And that is the thing that is misunderstood. That of course is what confuses me. I called my son to me and questioned him. Such an impulsive and passionate act could only have been the doing of my youngest. Rain stammered a bit and blushed a great deal, for prior to this he had shown no interest in courting. But he admitted the dream box, and the scarf, and flame jewel as well. She shook her head with maternal fondness. I have scolded him for this, but I fear he is quite unrepentant. He is very taken with your Malta. He did not, of course, discuss the dream they shared— That would be quite, uh, indelicate of a gentleman. But he did tell me that he was certain she looked with favor on his suit. She smiled round at them again. So I shall presume the box was found and enjoyed by the young lady. So we should all presume, I am sure, Ronica said suddenly before Kefria could speak. The two vestrit women exchanged glances whose meaning could not have been concealed from anyone. And with this... Janie says, I take it that you do not share her enthusiasm for this courtship. And Kefri doesn't know how to reply to this. They have now stepped into an awkward situation. She sips her wine, kind of chokes a little bit. And luckily, Veronica steps up because she's had a few more years to navigate these conversations and says, I'm afraid our Malta is a mischievous little thing full of pranks and tricks is our girl. Once again, this is like the second time I've, I've highlighted conversations. Ronica talks about Malta and highlights how she is a girl, young and experienced and just kind of sets that stage and that expectation in the, in the person's mind that Malta isn't taken, isn't to be taken seriously right now. Right. Which is very smart of her to do. And she says, no, Janie, it is not your son's courtship that we look on with disfavor. It is Malta's age and her childish behavior. When Malta is old enough to have suitors, he will most certainly be welcomed by us. And if he gains her favor, we would only, we could only feel honored by such a joining. But Malta, although she may have the appearance of a young woman, has only a child's years, and I fear a child's love of pretense and mischief. She is barely thirteen. She has not yet been presented. He must have seen her in her trader robe at the gathering you called. 
I am sure if he had seen her as she usually dresses, in a little girl's frocks, he would have realized his error. And there is a silence that descends, and Janie looks from one to the other, says, I see. She seemed to feel uncomfortable now. This, then, is why the young woman is not present tonight. Veronica smiles at her. She is long abed, as most children her age are. And Janie replies, I find myself in an awkward position. And Kefria responds like, I fear ours is also <laughs> very awkward. Right. But you know? before we get to that, let's go back and talk a little bit more in depth about some of the things that have happened. So it is just now revealed to both Kefri and Ronica the depth of Malta's lies. It wasn't just the dream box that she took and opened and lied about. There was also other gifts that are far more expensive that were accepted by Malta and hidden. The warm cl- or the scarf and flame jewel were taken and accepted by Malta. And this is really putting them in this position of being on the back foot of this conversation. They have no time to prepare because they didn't even know they needed to prepare. It just goes to show how little thought Malta has put into everything that she has done. She doesn't think about how her actions affect people long-term. She thinks about the joy and happiness she's getting out of it in the moment. And so like a child, like she's not thinking, oh, because I've accepted this from a man and I'm dressed as a woman, this means something different. It's, oh, somebody gave me a gift and I'm not going to remind him to take it back. It's her greed, it's her youngness that is keeping her that way. And now it's their job to present that as a mischievous child not knowing any better. Right. And it's kind of true. But it is kind of souring the conversation. Janie isn't really taking this laying down. She doesn't want to drop this situation and makes it clear by saying, you know, I'm in an awkward situation now. And Kefria responds saying like no 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 i i must also humbly apologize for her ill manners because we weren't aware i am distressed she heard her voice begin to shake i did not believe her capable of such deception and janie cooperus as well says well my son will certainly be discomfited i fear he is too naive he is close to 20 but never before has he evinced any interest in courting a bride and now i fear he has been precipitate oh dear This puts a different face on many things. She exchanged a glance with Calwyn, and the other woman met it with an uncomfortable smile. And Calwyn explains, The Festru family has ceded to the Cooper's family the contract for the live ship Vivacia. All rights and debt have been transferred to them. Kefria felt she staggered and fell out into the white silence. She scarcely needed the words that followed from Janie. My son negotiated this with the Festrus. I came tonight to speak for him, but clearly what I was to say is inappropriate now. No one needed to explain in Kefria's mind, but for the reader's sake, they explained that the debt would have been offered back as a bridal gift, an extravagantly expensive bridal gift, a typical Rainwild gesture, but on a scale Kefria had never before imagined. A live ship debt canceled for one woman's marriage consent? It was preposterous. Such a dream as it must have been, her mother murmured dryly. It was inappropriate, almost coarse in its implications. Kefria would always wonder if her mother had guessed what would happen next. As all the women burst into sudden laughter at the susceptibility of men, the awkwardness dispersed. 
they were all suddenly mothers caught up in the clumsiness of their offspring's fumbling courtship. And so we learned the craziness of the Cooper's wealth, of how this multi-generational debt, not just to create a live ship and awaken it, but then the multi-generational debt afterwards to pay it off, even with the increased sale of the goods from the Rainwild River, who have wealth beyond imagining, uh, the value beyond imagining for those magical items sold in Bingtown, is going to be paid off for one wedding present. <laughs> right. And... That's probably not the only thing he's going to bring to the table. This is right. clearly, and it was their youngest son's doing. So just to imagine the fact that he has enough wealth on his own with four other siblings to be able to wield that on his own to say, you know, this is what I'm using a huge chunk of change for and not need to ask permission. It's staggering. That's a lot of money to have just lying around. Yeah, And it does, I mean, prove that she would be well taken care of if she goes to the Rainwild Trader. Oh, yeah. Like, there's... And they know that, too, but I I don't think that's on the top of their mind. Right. That's not what they're worried about. (laughs) But, you know, it goes into this place of... It's awkward because he has bought this as a bridal gift, and now she has to go back and tell him that he's not allowed to court her. And what is she going to do? It's her baby boy who never wanted to marry, and she can't possibly tell him no. And then, thanks to the dispelling of the tension with Veronica's well-timed joke, it's able to kind of make it a little bit more comfortable and have Janie a little bit more accepted or susceptible to making some agreements that aren't as dire. Right. Yeah. It it just breaks the tension a bit more so everyone can be on a a level playing field as mothers. Right. But this doesn't stop her from not taking this seriously from saying, you know what? Oh, obviously we've made a mistake and we'll wait. There is waiting that she's willing to do, but not very much of it. Right. She talks about how she sees the problem as time and that the problem is not so great that time can't solve it. So my son must wait. It will not harm him. I will speak to him most seriously. I shall tell him that his courtship cannot commence until your Malta has presented herself as a woman. She paused mentally calculating. If that is this spring, then the wedding can be in summer. Wedding? She will barely be 14, Kefria cried out incredulously. She would be young, Callan agreed, and adaptable for a Bingtown woman marrying into a Rainwild family. That is advantageous. She smiled and says, I was 15. Kefri, of course, is a little bit horrified at that. Right. So that's why she doesn't see a problem. Yeah, it, with, it's typical. Yeah, and she goes on later to talk about how She's viewing time as a Rainwild trader, not as a Bingtown trader. But in this moment, I'll only talk about how she is dead set on this marriage happening. There is no reason. Nothing is going to convince her, not even saying that she's a baby. 14? Well, I was 15 when I got married, so she won't be that young. Well, that was Calwin who said she was 15. Ah, fair enough. But still, it's just an example that it is maybe early, but still around the age. Right. And you know what? On her part, she is trying to be um, generous by saying, "Okay, we'll wait until she officially comes out as a woman, which you plan to do in spring, obviously. 
and then they can get married in summer. There is no no thought in her mind that maybe they need more time or maybe Malta isn't going to be coming out as a woman in spring. It's obviously this is just a few months of waiting. That's fine. But any more time than that, not okay. She doesn't want to wait. She has given the amount of time she's willing to wait. Right. And that's where this kind of comes to a head once again, because Veronica speaks up and says, it's far too early for us to speak of marriage. I have told you that Malta is fond of childish pranks. I fear this may be one of them and that she has not considered your son's courtship with the seriousness it deserves. There is no need for haste. Janie says, like, you speak like a big town trader. This is a negotiation, right? But you live long lives and bear many children. We do not have the luxury of time, as this is what you were saying, Emma. My son is almost 20. Finally, he has discovered a woman he desires, and you tell us he must wait? Over a year? It will not do. It's disgusting, right? Like, I don't want to pretend it's not. She is acknowledging that her son is almost 20 years old. So 19, he is 19 years old and he deserves a bride whether or not she's 13 because they don't live long lives and he deserves to live the next three years of his short little life in happiness, regardless of what that means for a poor little 13 year old girl. And that's disgusting to me because sure. We just had Calvin say, well, I was 15 when I got married, which still bad. I don't think 15 is any better than 13, 14, But the fact that this grown woman is saying, well, my son might not have a very long life. I'm not making him wait 14 or not. This 20 year old deserves her. And it's gross. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it it or go like just skim over that section. It's gross. And I think it's despicable that a woman would do that to a child, another woman, almost woman and say it deserves. And obviously these are different times, but, and, and a fake world. This isn't even a real child, but it's still, I don't know, worth being said that it's wrong. (laughs) Kefria says, I will not force my child. And Janie says like, well, I don't think you're going to be forcing anybody because if the dream had revealed to rain that she was childish, that, that would be (laughs) it. That would be done. It'd be over. She says, my son does not believe it is a question of forcing anyone, and I believe him. Which, again, yuck, hate that wording. And then, like you said, the dream would have revealed she was childish, and he didn't think she was. Like, okay, but he also thinks a 14-year-old is cute. So, like, I don't know what to tell you, lady, but clearly he doesn't have very good judgment. I don't, like, (laughs) you're going to take his word? Okay. Maybe we should talk to the girl whose whole life is being affected, but... Whatever. That's just my opinion. She says into a silence that the offer is handsome. You cannot be hoping for more from anyone. And Ronica swiftly replies, yeah, no, we, we can't. But we're all women and such. We know that women cannot be bought. Like the heart cannot be bought. All we do is ask that you wait until Malta's a little bit older. To be sure she knows her own mind. And Janie says... Surely, if she opened the dream box and dreamed to share dream, then we can say that she knows her mind. And Ronica responds, the act of a willful child should not be seen as the decision of a woman. I tell you, you must wait. Uh, Snaps for Queen Ronica. (laughs) We love to see it. I don't praise her enough for her decisions, but this one, a child opening a box is not the same as a woman making a decision about marriage to a 20-year-old. That is despicable of Janie 
to say this, to pretend as though a child hearing that a magical dream box is there wouldn't open that. It would a real woman would make that choice, not a child who's fascinated by magic. Like to pretend that that is a only an, a choice a, an adult could make is disgusting and I hate it and very victim blamey of Malta. Like, no, <laughs> I, it just, ugh, I get that she loves her baby boy and wants him to be happy no matter what, but like, really, that's the hill you're going to die on. I don't know. Sorry. I keep interrupting because I just cannot strike home enough about how much she is like, excusing from her son and trying to walk over the fact that this is a 14 year old girl, but it is coming to a head and Ronica isn't letting her do that. She, which is kind of funny. We see these two very strong, powerful women going head to head. And I think it's really admirable that Ronica is standing up for this position because she is the less powerful of the two. She has a lot to lose in this situation and Janie invokes blood or gold, the debt is owed. The payment is due soon, Ronica Vestrit, and you have already been short with it once. By our contract, we can determine the coin of its payment. Ronica stands and points out the payment by the door and repeats, I will not, I will never give you child or grandchild of mine, save that she goes by her own will. That is all I am saying to you, Janie Cupris, and it shames us both that such a thing must be spoken aloud. And Calvin, in before this fully blows up, kind of steps in and says, please, please, all of us can chill here. Let's you know? recall who we are. Yeah. Let's take a minute. Let's breathe. <laughs> and we do have the hearts of two young people to consider. I propose a compromise, one that may spare all of us much grief. Janie Cooperus must accept your gold this time for she is as surely bound by what I and Ronica agreed here in the same kitchen as Ronica is ultimately bound by the contract itself. On that we all agreed, do we not? Janie Cooperus was the first to nod stiffly. That nod that eventually came from Ronica was more like a bowing of the head in defeat. Alwyn gave a sigh of relief and says, This would be my compromise. I speak, Ronica, as a woman who has known Janie's reign all, for all of his life. He is a most honorable and trustworthy young man. You need not fear he will take advantage of Malta, regardless of whether she be a girl or woman. And that is why I believe you could let him begin his courtship now, chaperoned, of course, and with the stipulation that there will be no more gifts such as could turn a girl's head more with greed than love. Simply allow Rain to regularly present himself to her. If she is truly a child, he will see this promptly and be more abashed than any of us can imagine to have made such a mistake. But if she is truly a woman, give him a chance, the first chance of any, to win her heart for himself. Is this too much to ask? That he be allowed to be her first suitor? It went far to repair many things between them that Ronica looked to Kefria for a decision. Kefria licked her lips. I think I can allow this if they are well chaperoned, if there are no expensive gifts to turn her head. She sighed. In truth, Malta has opened this door. Perhaps this should be her first lesson as a woman that no man's affection is to be taken lightly. End of chapter. So I think it's, it's nice of Cowlin to come forward and try to patch things up. She is obviously indebted to the friendship that she and Ronica shared for all of their lives, essentially. And that she is trying to help Ronica here. She is finding a middle ground 
but it's still kind of more advantageous, obviously, to the Cooperses. And it's just hard because obviously there is no easy way out of this. And she says, you know, let's just give them a chance. And obviously he'll realize if she really is just a naive little child and he'll feel embarrassed, which I don't know, will he? (laughs) But here we are and she's offered this up. And then we get to see the beautiful moment of Ronica deferring to Kefria. Right. It's Kefria's decision. Ronica has taken charge of this conversation, has said, I'm not giving you a child or a grandchild and stood up to this person that has much more money and power than they do for the sake of her daughter. But then in this, in this decision that needs to be made, she's deferring to Kefria and saying, what do you want? And like Kefria says, that goes a long way to helping their relationship. Yeah. And it shows that she's trying. She's trying to let Kefria make decisions. And I think Kefria does make a decision different to how Veronica would have. But I also think that that was her decision to make. Yeah, it was. Ooh, weird stuff. (laughs) A lot of heavy topics this chapter. Yeah. And it does set up for more awkwardness with Malta, of course, in the future. And the start of a tragic storyline for Wintrow and Vivacia. Right. Of course, their whole storyline is pretty tragic, but another thread in that story. (laughs) Yeah, it's... A lot of changes happening, a lot of both, I guess, Vestrit Haven children. I guess there's three of them, but the two main ones. <laughs> yeah, Selden's pretty much forgotten. He doesn't, he's not that important till later, so we'll yeah. forget him for now. But <laughs> I think it's an oversight Selden. on I, Hobbes' part, yeah. but you know. Yeah, poor Selden. But anyway, the two main siblings here older of the siblings having their lives changed directly as an impact of their own naivety and choices that they have made. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. Emma, do you have any final thoughts on the chapter? I think this chapter, it's so funny because there's a lot of heartbreaking things that happen in this chapter, but there are some really good insights into the world and the people. I guess that's really every chapter Robin Hobb yeah. writes. But <laughs> We can really see that the Rainwild traders come from a different world and they have to shift their perspective on life because right. of the short lives that they live and what they deal with. Right. So it's kind of a clash and a really... The first big look into that difference is the, the different and disgusting values that comes out of that clash. (laughs) Right. And it's, it's hard because although we're railing against, I, a 21st century woman am railing against a 14 year old marrying a 20 year old, which is obviously easy to do now. (laughs) And I I don't know, I guess easy to rail against now. Well, easy to rail against now. now. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, I'm allowed as a woman to be on a podcast and voice my opinion against it. Um, Whereas there is a time period when, Podcasts didn't exist and women weren't allowed voices, but (laughs) obviously it is a book in in this society. I don't think it's that weird for 
tween teenagers to get married. Like, even though right. they're or like saying be promised or something, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're saying she's only going to be 14, but realistically that's kind of when they present people as women in yeah. big town. That, it that seems is... like that's the age that they present each other. Calvin was 15 and it seems like Kefria wasn't much past 20 when she got married. Even, I think she was courting. younger than 20 when she got married. Possibly. Yeah. I So yeah. it's, yeah, it, it's just seems kind of typical, but Malta's on the cusp of being like just a year or two too young, which is the hang up for the Vestrits. Right. And it's so, and it, it, it is interesting to think about on that level of, realistically like she's just a kid it's so yeah yeah. like it's not like there's that much of a i mean obviously there's a big difference from every year from age eight onward until you hit about 24 and then i think well maybe 21 22 but there's like big differences every year but like there's not a really a difference to an adult between a 13 and a 15 year old like it's all a child, right? I don't and know. So the clashing of the views. Yeah, it, it is gross. And I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's the last time I'm going to mention it, but I probably won't no. go as hard as I did this chapter. It was just one of the easier First chapters up, to yeah. point it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm probably going to make snide marks, remarks about it. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I think it'll be interesting to see how they go forward. And I don't know. Again, we it's hard because like on the one hand, it's like, oh, I'm so glad we have strong women and this chapter showed four strong women coming together and having disagreements and not backing down. And it wasn't all pleasantries. It's not, you know, Mm -hmm. hidden behind fans and secret talk. They're openly talking about what they want and it's not in a way that's viewed as bad. But then on the other hand, one woman is advocating for a 14 year old to marry a 20 year old and the other woman isn't. So like the topic matter isn't great, but I don't know. (laughs) It is what it is. It's yeah. If you have thoughts about, any of their societies, the the different values clashings, please let us know. You can email us at isfitshappy at gmail.com or message us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, any of those comments. Write in. We'd love to hear from you. Please recommend this podcast to other friends who who have read the books, hopefully, so we can have these conversations with them as well. Rate, review us. It helps us out a bunch. And thanks so much for supporting can't wait to see what you guys say next week. 